Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 2 Corinthians. In most of the books of the Bible that we've covered thus far, I've attempted to provide a little bit of background information in the first chapter episode of the series. But this tends to make that first episode significantly longer than all the others. As such, I experimented with the idea of providing a standalone introductory episode for the Proverbs series. And given how well that was received, I will likely make that my standard procedure moving forward. The book of the Bible we refer to as 2 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, if you happen to be listening in the UK, is part of a series of letters written by the Apostle Paul to Christians living in Corinth, a Roman colony that had been founded on the previously destroyed Greek city of the same name. Now, as I mentioned in the first episode of the series on 1 Corinthians, reading these two letters is a bit like listening in on a conversation that a friend is having with someone else on his or her cell phone. You can hear what your friend is saying, but you can't hear what the other person is saying. To further complicate matters, we're actually joining this conversation partway through. The letter we call 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter that Paul writes to these people, and the letter we call 2 Corinthians is the fourth letter that he writes to them. So we're having to do a little bit of imaginative reconstruction here. Now, thankfully, there are references in the book of Acts that provide a bit of an outline for us. The Apostle Paul first visited the city of Corinth in A.D. 50 or 51. You can read about that in Acts 18, verses 1 to 17. It appears that initially he supported himself as a tent maker, and in the course of that work, he met Aquila and Priscilla, with whom he stayed for the duration of his ministry in the city. As was his normal habit, he preached regularly in the Jewish synagogue, and many Jews and Gentile God-fearers were converted. However, as was also often the case, this resulted in some serious pushback. And so Paul left the synagogue and started a church in the house next door, taking the former leader of the synagogue, a man named Crispus, along with him. It was, as you can well imagine, a tumultuous season. Despite that rather explosive start, Paul stayed in Corinth for about 18 months before eventually moving on. Paul was a church planter, not a pastor per se. So once he had things up and going and once he had appointed elders, he typically moved on to the next corner of the vineyard. But he always tried to maintain contact and basic oversight through letters, follow-up visits, and by sending out his various apostolic delegates, men like Timothy and Titus who would pass on his encouragements and corrections to the various congregations that he had planted. In line with this general pattern, Paul had written a letter to the Corinthians reminding them that as Christians, they must exercise some wisdom when it came to their personal, social, and commercial associations. Paul makes mention of that first letter in 1 Corinthians 5.9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, 
if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, close quote. That's 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 11. Well, obviously then, as I mentioned, the letter we call 1 Corinthians is not really 1 Corinthians. It's 2 Corinthians. If he's mentioning a previous letter in the first letter that we have, it's obviously not the first letter that he wrote. That second letter, the one that we call 1 Corinthians, was written from Ephesus in response to some concerning reports that had reached the Apostle Paul through various sources. In terms of the timeline, the letter we call 1 Corinthians was almost certainly written during the events narrated in Acts 19. Reports had come to Paul that the Corinthians were divided, that they were falling into cliques based on their preferred teachers, that they were confused about Paul's previous instructions about separation from immoral people. That probably explains some of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. And then there was sexual immorality within the church itself, and they were also very excited about certain spiritual gifts to the point where their practice and focus had become distorted. And so Paul wrote a very practical, pastoral, and corrective letter. There are, there are a lot of don't do this and, and do that's in 1 Corinthians, which is probably why we tend to use it so much in the church. It is filled with helpful counsel, direction, and wisdom. All right, so far, so good. Now, near the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul lays out some tentative plans for a future visit. He says in 1 Corinthians 16, 5-9, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits." But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries, close quote. So, Paul promised a longer visit, but for whatever reason, his plans changed and he wasn't able to pull this off, and that led to some hurt feelings and to some unfair accusations. Now, to a certain extent, this is similar to what parents typically experience with their kids, and the Corinthians do come off as remarkably immature. Every parent knows that a change of plans due to an unforeseen set of circumstances does not constitute a lie by any reasonable definition. You might say to your children, this summer we will go to the cottage and visit grandma. All right, but if the cottage burns down or if grandma moves into a rest home, that plan is going to change, and that doesn't make mommy and daddy liars. That makes them finite creatures living in a complex universe largely beyond their control, which, of course, is a very difficult thing to explain to a six-year-old or to a newly converted Corinthian, apparently. Happily, the Apostle Paul was wise enough to add the phrase, if the Lord permits, to his statement in 1 Corinthians 16:7. So he's on very steady ground here. But even still, the folks in Corinth are feeling put out. To further complicate matters, at some point, Paul feels compelled to make a short emergency visit that does not go very well. Now, we're not sure why Paul did this. It may have had to do with a snag in the collection for Jerusalem, or it may have had to do with the growing rift in his relationship with the church. We're not really sure what happened. We just know that Paul made a, a sort of flyby visit, and the whole thing went rather poorly. A leader in the church stood up and actively opposed Paul, questioning his authority and his status as an apostle. And the church did nothing to restrain this fellow, indicating that they too had some questions and concerns about Paul's status. 
Paul was a sickly man. He was very academic and theological and did not speak with a great deal of flair and style like the rhetoricians that they were used to. And he traveled on a shoestring budget, sometimes even working with his hands to support himself. He didn't look or act very much like a big shot leader. And so many of them were wondering if maybe God wasn't blessing his ministry. How could such a weak man truly possess the sort of authority and clout that he claimed to wield? Now, rather than put down this little rebellion right then and there, Paul decides to make a tactical retreat so as to facilitate a cooling off period. He doesn't force the issue, perhaps feeling that there wasn't enough time for him to do so, given the brief duration of this particular visit. Again, there are substantial gaps in our knowledge of the specifics here. Maybe Paul had been given free passage on a merchant ship and he had to leave when the ship left. Regardless, he was unable to resolve the problem before he had to depart. And so he wrote them a letter to try to bring them back in line. That letter is often referred to by scholars as the severe letter. That's letter number three in the series, if you're keeping track. Now, that letter has not survived. One wonders if everyone mutually agreed to burn their copies once the relationship was restored. We know about it because Paul refers to it in the letter we refer to as 2 Corinthians. It hurt Paul to write it, and it hurt them to receive it. Paul apparently laid down the law. He let them know that Christianity is not a democracy, nor is it a beauty contest. And there is no such thing as rejecting the authority of an apostle. That's not an option. You either conform to the apostolic gospel or you are not a Christian. It, it really is that simple. So Paul lays it all out on the line, we might say. And as severe as the letter was, it apparently did the trick. The people repented and got back in line. In fact, as we'll see in the letter we call 2 Corinthians, the people may have overcorrected in response to the severe letter. They appear to have turned on the fellow who raised the initial objection, and so Paul now has to lay down a process for his return and reconciliation with the group. Regardless, with the church now coming back in line, Paul writes another letter, 2 Corinthians, the letter we're about to read. He writes this letter from Macedonia in AD 56, and he sends it once again through the hands of Titus. He says that he will come, and they will have that extended visit that they'd all been hoping for. And this time, he was able to make good on that intention. He stays with them for an extended period on his way to Jerusalem with the offering that he has assembled from all the Gentile churches in that region. You can read about that in Acts 20, verses 1 to 3. While he was there, he writes his famous epistle to the Romans, in which he expresses his intention to take the gospel as far away as Spain. He makes mention in that letter that the Corinthians had indeed completed their collection for the poor and needy in Jerusalem. So all in all, the story ends on a happy note. All right, that's the background narrative. Now, as for the letter itself, it is a remarkably personal epistle. Paul explains himself and defends himself by way of defending the nature and shape of the Christian life. As an apostle, he both proclaims and illustrates the gospel. That's the call. But it does not align very well with their default expectations. This is a very Roman church, and I think it would be fair to say, a very worldly church. The Pillar New Testament Commentary puts it this way. It says, Many of their faults can be traced to their uncritical acceptance of the attitudes, values, and behaviors of the society in which they lived. Close quote. Exactly that. 
Christianity represented a significant departure from the pagan and philosophical traditions that they were familiar with. And Paul's life seemed designed to force them to reckon with those basic incongruities. As Michael J. Gorman puts it, what unifies the shifting rhetoric of 2 Corinthians is its ultimate focus on the spirit-filled, cruciform shape of transformed life in Christ. Close quote. Now, that's quite a mouthful, but it's important that you hear that. In essence, what he's saying is the argument is going to seem to go back and forth. It's a very uh, relational letter. It doesn't flow like a well-organized systematic theology. That's not, that's not what this is. This is a personal letter. It's a relational letter. But what holds it all together, as, as things seem to move back and forth, what holds it all together is this concern for them to understand the spirit-filled, cruciform shape of transformed life in Christ. To be a Christian is to live a cross-shaped life. The cross exudes a force that, that shapes and molds and influences the life and trajectory of the true Christian. They need to understand that. That's what lies behind all of the basic issues that they're having here. They just don't get the life of the cross. And so Paul just keeps bringing it back to that and, and bringing it back to the foot of the cross and, and measuring every issue and every contention and every misunderstanding in the shadow of the cross. The, the issue is Paul looks like the gospel he preaches. He's living that cross-shaped life. His, his ministry is all about power in weakness, joy in suffering, life in death. And he wants them to understand that's what it means to follow Christ. And, that, and that's what it means to be an apostle of Christ. That's what it means to serve as any kind of representative of Jesus Christ. But that was not intuitive for these folks. And therefore, as Douglas Moo puts it, the single major issue that led to the writing of 2 Corinthians then is a crisis of authority, closed quote. Paul wanted them to understand that far from disqualifying him from a position of authority, his weakness and frailty, humanly speaking, actually positioned him perfectly to serve as an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's a sort of contrast being worked out between a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. Now, in terms of structure, most scholars and commentators will identify three basic sections. After a fairly standard introduction, in chapters 1 to 7, Paul explains his recent conduct towards them as a church. Then, in chapters 8 to 9, he calls on them to finish what they've started with respect to the Jerusalem offering. And then in chapters 10 to 13, he vigorously defends his use and exercise of authority. So if you like to include headings or titles in your study notes, you could probably put the word explanation at the head of chapters 1 to 7. You could put the word encouragement before chapters 8 to 9. And then you could put the word defense before chapters 10 to 13. That's your basic outline. On the way to accomplishing these various objectives, Paul says a number of significant things about the nature and purpose of suffering, the shape and look of Christian ministry, the relationship between the Old and New Covenants, the work of the Holy Spirit, the means of reconciliation, and the practice of Christian stewardship. It is a very human letter and a very helpful letter. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. 
Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 